Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh. Guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Leslie, guess what today is? Leslie, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day. Hump day. Yeah, this is the Donaldson Files. Tom Donaldson, Coco Konski is on her sabbatical, but I do have a couple of guests today. The first guest I'll have will be uh, uh, Shell Zane Quinn. We'll talk more about her a little later. Poet, and the other guest, the other guest I will have will be Jim Michaels at the bottom of the hour. He's going to be talking about some in- interesting new programs dealing with uh, returning citizens. Another things that he's learning through studies on how to move forward with the urban centers. So those are the 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 guests that we have and but I want to kind of start off with a couple of quick things here and then before we get the shell. Um ever so often I, I have to be honest with you, I, I get myself to a point where uh a pay, you know, I kind of lose it a little bit when you know you see things that are just absolutely outrageously stupid and all right and so basically i wanted to kind of talk about you know news coverage and and what i'm about to say is that there was a gentleman who worked with cnn he tweeted a tweet which he has now since deleted which is good that he deleted it but it's been repeated over 14,000 plus times. So it's got 26,000 likes. And it's just totally, absolutely, 100% false. If you want to know why, let's say, you know, we have the panic we do with COVID, this is one of the reasons. When you have individuals within the media who absolutely either do not understand the science or just simply lie. Uh, he tweeted the following. There are approximately 328 million people in the U.S. to get to the low end of herd immunity, about 60%. Must catch COVID. That's about 196 million cases. The current death rate is 2.9%. That's five over nearly 6 million deaths necessary for herd immunity. Well, first of all, the guy's an idiot. I'm just going to say, he's an idiot. for number one, if you've been keeping up with the literature, you'll know very clearly the herd immunity can start happening at 20%. And certainly this has been the past record of we saw with the flu. About 40 to 60 million Americans 
over the past decade, average was the average who got the flu. That's about 20% of the population. And, and so this is some of the latest data. Number two, the current death rate is based on a confirmed cases. But you don't judge fatality rates of viruses like this on confirmed cases because everybody pretty much knows that for every case we have confirmed, there's literally 10 out there that aren't that are out there. So basically, and, and I've stated this so many times, is, you know, when it comes to COVID, it's like an iceberg. What you see in confirmed cases is that 10%, it's the 90% under the ocean you don't see. And so the actual fatality rate is not near, is not 2.9%. It's 0.29% at best. The C, there have been numerous studies around the world around the world and notes that the infectious fatality rate is about 0.2 to 0.6. That puts in the same category of the 1957-68 pandemic, and it also makes it a couple of times more lethal, in particular among the elderly and the those with comorbidity. Five million plus deaths. But consider that the worst case scenarios that were done by models, which had long since been debunked, was two million. I mean, this guy is basically totally off by a factor of ten to twenty-five. Now, as I stated, he's long. He's since uh, removed the tweets. I don't know if it's because he got a lot of complaints, or he realized he made a lot of mistakes. I hope it's the latter, but it should never have been tweeted to begin with. Uh, it is bad reporting like this that. Bad reporting like this that should just simply, simply, and CNN is going to have to sit back and talk to their reporters and say, or editors, hey, if you're going to be tweeted, make sure you tweet it right. Or is there enough people in CNN that just simply do not know the truth? All right. That, I got that off my chest. But, and number two, I'm going to do a kind of a segment here. And the segment I'm going to do is on the U.S. Open. At the U.S. Open, I think we – I'm going to put this – I'm going to count to three because I know there's been attempts for other people to try to get me on the show to talk about it. I've written books on tennis, and uh, my daughter and I usually on a yearly basis go to the U.S. Open, even though this year we didn't because they don't have fans at the U.S. Open this year. But I'm going to – make a few statements and anybody who wants to copy this part of the show, this segment, feel free to do so for your show and in particular those people on our network. I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. All right. The U.S. Open. To me, two things came out of this. In the case of the men, I think we're starting to see the changing of the guards. For the last 13 majors before this one, Three people won the major, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, the big three. Three of the greatest tennis players to ever grace a tennis court. I mean, these were the top three, period, greatest tennis players, and they've all been playing at the same time. But what we're seeing this time around, both Federer, who was injured, and Nadal, who decided he didn't want to come because of COVID, and Djokovic. And 
only joke about the big three came. He was disqualified because accidentally hit a referee with a tennis ball and while well, well, he was frustrated after lose after was losing in the first set of his match, I think it was in the quarterfinals. But the players who did the one who did win Dennis uh, team team of Austria is a very good tennis player and a, and a tennis player on the rise. I think what you're going to see is this. To me, Roger Federer is at the point of his career. He's 38 years old, and I just don't see him winning another major. I think what you've seen, you've already seen the best of Roger. I think Nadal's got a chance to win a couple more majors and may end up retiring with more majors than Roger. Uh, Djokovic is about three behind, so he's within reach. These gentlemen are 32 and 33. So how much more do they have left in the tank, and can they play further? Or have we seen the changing of the guard where the younger generation tennis players are now ready to start competing with Djokovic and Nadal for major titles? The change in the guard. The second part would be dealing with Serena Williams. I think we're seeing the end of an era in women tennis. Serena Williams wants to win number 24. And and she's been one of the greatest players and certainly the greatest player in the open era. But since she's returned from her pregnancy, she has not been the same Serena. It seems like she's a step slower, a half a step slower than major of her competitors. And what's, what you've been seeing almost consistently is she'll get to the semis, she'll get to the finals, but she'll find that one or two female players who, A, are younger than her, just as hungry, can match her power for power, it may be just a half a step quicker. At the age of 38, she still has a grit. She still has a determination. She still has a competitiveness. But does she have enough to win one more major? To say, I'm not sure that she will. It's, a, it's, a, it's going to be very difficult, mainly because her competitors are younger, and they're only going to get better. And at the age of 38, we have, we're seen, we have already seen the best of Serena. She's been, one of, in my view, the greatest tennis player in the open era. Between her and her sister from the late 1990s to the present, they've been a dominant force in the world of, theme, of women tennis. But I think this U.S. Open saw the end of an era of the Williams sisters. Venus is pretty much is already pretty much at that point in her career that she's no longer a threat to win a major. It won't be long that Serena Williams may be joining her along those lines. This is Tom Donaldson on the Donaldson Files, and we will be right back here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events. 
an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. This is Tom Donson, Donson Files. Uh, welcome back. And don't forget, you can listen to our show 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the bachelornews.airtime.pro every day. In addition, if you want to call in, you can call in right now or just to listen, 646-929-0130. Okay. What I have is uh, my guest tonight. Uh, she's been on the show once before. Uh, she's from Mississippi, and she's an author of. Uh, she wrote a book not that long ago, only the beginning, and and she's going to be here. We're going to talk about some of her poetry and how much of it's autobiography and how much of it is. Uh, you know, her opinions, and, you know, this is, we're just going to get into it. And then at the bottom of the aisle, Jim Eccles will be joining us on some interesting deals. All right. Uh, so let me introduce you, Shell Zane Quinn. And first of all, Shell, uh, why don't you tell people how they can get your book? Hi, Tom. Um, you can go on to Amazon and do a search for my name. My book is there, and pretty simple. That's the only place that it is available at the moment. <laughs> well, Amazon's not a bad place to be available, so that's good. Yeah. No, it's it's real hard when you're a poet and you live in a town that doesn't even have a bookstore. So, you know, <laughs> it, that's kind of yeah. ironic, I think. All right. All right, I did I, I what I want to do here because obviously you still do a lot of your poetry on your Twitter site. So first one, the one, kind of tell people, yeah, tell people where they can get you on Twitter, and if there's any other social media, I'm going to discuss that. Okay, okay. At at the present moment, I am on Twitter. That's just it, just Twitter, and you can find me at Zan Quinn. At that, that is my name on the Twitter. So, okay. Um, All right, and also, ladies I'll be and gentlemen, if you want to, yeah, and if you want, ladies and gentlemen, I'm also on Twitter as well at the Donaldson Files. So feel free to uh, go ahead right ahead and uh, Twitter me if you got any questions. All right, uh, let me kind of go with some of the questions here that uh, you know, some of, some of your poetry here. Mm-hmm. First of all, number one, how much of this is autobiography? I mean, how much of this, you know, how much of this is something that's related to your life? How much of this is just simply um, uh, the poet, the artist just lets loose? I I understand what you're asking, and it's um, it's a little of both, I would say. Um, you know, poetry for me, there's nothing in life, nothing I look at a tree, a flower. Um, I'm inspired by the bigger picture, but mostly the tiny things. And so poetry, it is kind of fluid in everything that I am. So a lot of, a lot of my writing is very true life, like a situation would inspire me and I would write a piece. Um, 
I don't really know how to write any other way, to be honest with you. Now, I can pull things out of my past, or I can pull things from a friend, a conversation with a friend, and it'll stay on my mind, and I might get a piece written about that. So I think it's um, it's a little of both, but I... The most that you see in me, I would I would say it's it's all pretty much true at some point in my life, <laughs> you know. Okay, yeah. So well, I mean, like I say, yeah. I know we were talking off the air a little bit earlier, and I also know that mm-hmm. in the past you've not dealt with some political things, but it seems like every so often you slip those in, and we'll kind of get into that. Right. But, but. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. Here's the thing. Okay. Here's the. It is the sun when I wish most for a full moon. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's the question. Here's the question. Is this a, is this something like a, is it like you want to hear the night? You want to see the full moon? It does it have a symbolism? What's the symbolism? There? It 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 actually is um, that particular piece. I mean, the thing about writing poetry is I can write a piece of poetry. And a hundred people can read it, and they can take away from it what they need to take away from, what their mind, their heart, their soul. And it, it's never absolutely the same thing that they always take away from it. It may not even be uh, what I meant for when I wrote it. Um, but that's okay. It's kind of like music, you know. It's, um, it's the same thing with music. I mean, you can hear a song, and each person is going to take the pieces or the meaning away from that song. But I think that comes with life experience. And in that particular poem that I wrote, I was basically, it was in a way of me saying, I'm getting one thing, but I don't desire that. You know? And it's Mm -hmm. not that they're not good things. They're not, it's not that it's not things that I need or enjoy, but it's like one of those days when, when you just, you want something so bad, right? But you have to be okay with what you got. And that's kind of how that was, you know, when I wrote that. That was mm-hmm. the feeling I had. Okay. All right, here's so, one. I mean, this is one. Because I, you know, when I read this one, this one I found so interesting. The ghosts of August are gone. Smile disappearing in the past. September has been silent in the shadows. And I've slipped safe into her arms. Now, I, I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. summer to me has, like, slept with me. It's, like, gone quickly. I mean, I, I yeah. don't think I remember having summer. <laughs> and so I know. And I guess, you know, but most of us, for the summer, you know, the fall's coming. Uh, it's, you know, the fall's coming, and it, 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 I guess there's that aspect of, the silence of the fall, the silence of the trees turning, the silence of the leaves yes. falling. Yeah. Yes, there's like, and so that's how I interpret that. I mean, yeah, I mean, and obviously and we have our own interpretation. You did well. You, know, you did. I think you did well with that. Yes. Yes. And oh, um, so I, I, you I, know, go ahead. You got it. <laughs> I think. I think all of us now going through this time in the world that's so hard. Um, we have all dealt with things that we never thought we'd deal with. And I don't know, to me, 
fall has always felt like a new start, you know, the fresh air, the changing. It's a changing, a beautiful changing. And I think people are ready for change <laughs> and um, in more ways than one. Um, it's, I think that the season is, the changing of the seasons is constant, no matter what's going on in the world. And with all the madness that we've all had to deal with, um, I think people are looking, is next week going to be different? Is it going to get better next month? Are things going to be normal? And all the things that have been disrupted in our lives, the one thing we know that's going to happen is that a season's going to change, right? So you kind of have to find comfort in that. That is one thing that keeps happening, you know, and to do something simple as like sit outside with a cup of coffee and feel the brisk air on your face or look up at the trees as the leaves are changing color. I think those are the things that before COVID, perhaps people didn't really take it all in, but now we're kind of forced to because what what else is there to do, right? <laughs> so, uh-huh. yeah. All right, here's a look okay. at. I'm going to kind of flip it over to because, uh, I mean, first of all, number one, uh, somehow or another, you got interested in the Delaware Senate race on the Democratic side. I did. Yeah. I did. Elect, yeah, elect Coons, my lord. Nothing would change for your children or grandchildren. He's in bed with the corporate entities. They steer him. Yeah. What yes, first I did write that. Yeah. What did you um, get? What first of all got you interested in that particular race? Because it's I mean, I know you're left of center, but I think it was just kind of interesting that that was the race that you you seem right. to at least in the last couple of days fixate on. So what um, what was it that appealed to you that got you interested in the Delaware race? Because I'm looking first of all I happen to think the things that she stands for, her platforms are great. I mm-hmm. I am one of those people that are left. I respect everybody's views, but at the same time, I think that both sides, <sighs> it's not much to choose from what we had to choose from. But in my opinion, these these other races and these other states that I don't live in, they're important because in order to – to make a change, we have to get politicians on both sides. We have to get them out. If if they are only concerned about corporations, you know, we need people, normal people in there that are not going to be bought, that, that are actually going to implement policy for the people. I'm feeling very different now looking at the Democrats because I feel like they give us platitudes, platitudes, and nothing is ever done. And I'm not a fan of Trump. I mean, but I'm going to be fair to Trump. The troubles that we're having didn't happen in four years. And it's about time that people on the left call their politicians out. You have to earn my vote, right? What are you going to give me for my vote? This voting along with the status quo 
is not it's not something I can do. So as far as the race in Delaware, I just felt like I wanted to do the things I could in small ways to promote that because I think that she would have been real change. And I think Chris Coons is it's more for corporations. So as court yeah. so there. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's an interesting point because usually, you know, you know, excuse me there, folks. Uh, usually, you know, you don't associate, you know, a corporation, but certainly for years and years, there's always been that. You know, one of the corporate aspects, one of the things I tell people, you know, what they say about money, because I work in the political business. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, and I do it on the other side of the equation. But, you know, I, I you know, there, it, it, and what I'll tell me, I said, look, you know, you don't understand one thing. There's a lot of corporate money that goes to Democrats mm-hmm. for a lot of different businesses. Yeah, you know, it's in true. In fact, if anything, if anything, you know, in the past couple election cycles, Democrats have actually gotten more money from the wealthy and from, you know, selected mm-hmm. corporate interests than the Republicans have. And it certainly has been, and I certainly can say true in this particular election cycle. So it's not like, it's something, I, I thought it was interesting, you notice that, but it's not something a lot of people talk about and you read a lot in the papers. Mm, no, and you know why that is? It's because no one wants to talk about it. No one, on my side, I mean, there are people now that are standing up and saying, you know, hey, if I'm going to vote for you, I'm not going to just vote for you because you're running and I'm a Democrat. What policies are you going to, you know, implement? I just happen to think that it's almost like we really don't really have two sides anymore. I mean, sure, they bicker and they fight and they go back and forth. But in a pandemic, when people are hurting and struggling and families are trying to make ends meet, and both sides behave like children. They can't get anything done. Um, it's a scary situation because if you're that family trying to figure out how you're going to make it, you know, it's scary. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do one more real quick here. Uh, I'd like to say we're getting close, uh, like I say, to our next break. In fact, actually, we're going to take a next break right now. And uh, okay. we'll be right back, and then we'll finish up. Um, I know I know you mentioned that you may have to leave early. I so, did, Tom, and I so thank you for having me on. Yeah, but well, like I say, wait, let me let me just. So this is Tom Donaldson uh, here in the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We'll be right back, and then we'll have a few extra minutes uh, with Shell before hopefully our, our guest at the bottom of the hour will be joining us, Jim Eccles. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And thanks, Don Tom Downs and Nelson Palace. Welcome back. Don't forget you can call in at 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130. Uh, or you can get me on Twitter at Donaldson Files. Right now, if you've got any questions or comments, uh, or you just simply want to say, Tom, you're the greatest. I, I certainly will allow you on just to say that alone. Uh, mm-hmm. 
And don't forget the 3 a.m., 10 a.m. every day on the BastardNews.Airtime.Pro. You can get this podcast and another podcast uh, every day. So, all right. Now, I'm going to slip over a little bit now because now we talked again very briefly about this. Uh, uh, Let me see if I can find the one. Mm-hmm. This sounded like a kind of a, you know, we kind of talked about it, so I don't know how far you want to get into this conversation. But the boy <laughs> I knew, the boy I knew, a beautiful man now, another chance. I'm rolling the dice on a game board of a night sky, bumping into one another just as we are. That uh, sounded rather. <laughs> yes, um, I will just say this. <clears throat> that was a very special right that I had and it is very true and I will just say to you that life is about taking chances sometimes we win sometimes we lose but it's about taking risks especially when it comes to love and that particular piece is just what it sounds like a second chance at real love and you have to be all in, you know? You have to be all in. And I'm all in. <laughs> yeah. But so. yeah, I, I mean, I, I said we didn't. But I, I just thought because it just seems like there were those aspects where the, you know, the personal did come into play. And, if, mm-hmm. you know, because, I mean, you see that. Let me ask you a question. Did you also do that? You know, would you say that your book, All in the Beginning, that it's, you know, again, very similar to what we're talking about here tonight, you know, the autobiography, you know, tripped into, let's say, observations of life. Yes, it very very much is, Tom. It is um, little snippets and little thoughts. Um, It, you know, life, it, it happens, whether we're, whether it's good or bad, things happen. And so mm-hmm. my poetry is diverse in that way, and that if it's a sad day, if, 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 if I'm feeling happy, joyful, whatever it is, I try to tend to write the truth, whether it's in metaphors or not, or whether it's just straight out, you know, very clear understanding of what's written. Um, I, I feel the most connected to poetry that is like yeah. that from other people. Um, yeah. Life is not always bubble gums and unicorns, you know, yeah. and so neither is my poetry. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I'm going to thank you very much. Just real quick. Again, tell everybody mm-hmm. how they can get a hold of your book. Only the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Just go to Amazon and on the book site and do a search and only the beginning by Shell Zen, and it should come up very easy. And then again, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Zen Quinn on Twitter, and so I would love to have you join me on this journey. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, this is uh, thank you. And I want to get, you know, if you want to stick around for a little bit longer, I'm going to take a one more quick reminder about the flu shots. And then on the other side, hopefully we'll have Jim Eccles. Uh, looked like he was on and back off, and hopefully he'll come back on very quickly. 
Okay. Okay. I never so get the flu. My kids so don't what? need more shots. I'm not tired. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah, welcome once again back to the, to the Donaldson Files. And now we're going to have on the air uh, my good friend, uh, Jim Michaels. Jim, how you doing, sir? Doing just fine, Tom. How are you? <clears throat> Not too bad. I tell you, before I do this, uh, we just had the, the poet uh, Shay Zane uh, Cook, uh, uh, Shell Zane Quinn. Line, and there was she did a, an interesting poem because she a very interesting poem that was going to be apropos for what you and I are going to start talking about. We all fail, okay. but get up again, trying our best to get it right. And and thank you, Shell, for those thoughts. And and I think this was. Uh, Kind of an interesting because one of the first time I wanted to talk to you about, we never really got a chance to really delve into it. I mean, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, where do we go from here? And 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 you brought it up very briefly, but I wanted to get more into it. And that is, you know, giving returning citizens as they leave prison second chances. And you've you know you've worked closely with. Uh, several people in the Kansas City, Kansas area, our good friend Delper Sleckman, as well as Randy Reithart of Zypher uh, Corporation. And, and by the way, they've been doing this for years. I mean, I think people mm-hmm. should understand, you know, this is not something, you know, they have been doing this for years. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Zephyr's been doing this for decades, or two or three decades. And Delbert has been doing this from, you know, from a you know very long period of time with his company. So, and I think, you know, and what I wanted to bring up is because, you know, we, we've, we've dealt the first chance. We got, the, you know, the, the president, you know, the, some of the sentence reforming, looking at and seeing, okay, it, you know, looking at certain prisoners is a time to get them back into society. And, and, and I think, you know, we, you know, to follow up on that first, what we call first step, it's now second step. And I view this as that second step. So what's your thoughts on that? And also, can you kind of explain what you've observed working with these two gentlemen? Yes, I'll uh, I'll say first of all, and uh, uh, most of us are aware by now uh, of the First Step Act, which was basically uh, passed at the federal level as far as federal correctional facilities and releases and some uh, different revisions in uh, criminal codes and so on at the federal level. What a lot of people don't recognize is uh, approximately 10 or 11% of the total incarcerated throughout the country are at the federal level. 90% approximately are in state facilities. And so in my mind, along with the general movement and inertia that we started with the first step back, the second step should definitely focus more on state uh, correctional facilities, uh, secretaries of corrections within those states, as well as 
governor's offices, and state legislatures. And so that's the area that we want to uh, focus on going forward. And right now, I live in Kansas, and we're working actively uh, in this area of the country. And the main organization that I'm affiliated with and I've been with now going on uh, about five months is an organization called Reaching Out From Within, which actually engages with uh, returning citizens behind the walls right now in all 12 facilities in the state of Kansas, uh, maximum, medium, as well as minimum throughout the state of Kansas. We're currently engaged with, in two facilities in the state of Missouri and five facilities in the state of North Carolina. And so we started primarily as a Midwestern operation, but it's rapidly expanding. And we have an active committee, social movements committee, uh, on our board, which is engaged in looking for opportunities to go into other states. But right now, the important thing is we do want to provide opportunities and a pathway for returning citizens to become productive members of society. And what that means is allowing an opportunity. But within the uh, opportunity or as far as success, the opportunities for training, education, and employment are going to be key to success there. And so we're engaged in uh, that aspect of it. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, Deborah Selectman, who is the president CEO of Delco Industrial. Uh, his organization uh, has worked closely with providing employment opportunities for individuals, particularly within the trades, at a decent wage and opportunities to uh, acclimate as a returning citizen to employment opportunities and trying to, you know, be successful and avoid returning to incarceration. And of course, as you said, uh, Zephyr Products in uh, uh, Leavenworth, Kansas, has been actively engaged for a number of years in providing, even while incarcerated, opportunities for employment and training with state-of-the-art technology to definitely prepare them for a good opportunity going forward. And so uh, my hope is that right now, uh, reaching out from within, participated with the Greater Kansas City Chamber on the 25th of August, uh, we participated in a workshop for returning citizens where we were fortunate to get approximately 100 uh, companies of the Greater Kansas City Chamber to participate in a workshop to learn about some of the challenges, barriers, and obstacles that are uh, out there and that returning citizens are confronted with when they return and try to establish themselves. And so it was a good opportunity to kick off, and we've been asked to return to partner with the chamber for a second uh, program next year. So we're going to be working on that. And right now, 98% of incarcerated individuals across the country are going to be returning back to society at some point. And so it's important that we provide them as much support as we can as far as reintegration and successful outcomes. Hey, hold on, Dustin. Uh, well, Tom Dawson. Uh, with my co-host, Coco Conti, is on sabbatical. Um, 
We'll be right back uh, here on the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com in the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. This is Tom Donaldson, but welcome back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And also, don't forget, uh, the Dr. Larry Show will be following this show on this particular network uh, every Wednesday. And also, Locker Talk with Barry Bondsbury, where you can hear about the NFL stars of tomorrow. Today, listen to Barry every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at blocktalkradio.com, L.A. Bachelor. And the podcast every day from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, Daylight Eastern Standard Time with back-to-back episode at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. If you're interested in having your own show or advertising, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. And don't forget, our show uh, is also on thebachelornews.airtime.pro, uh, 3 a.m., 10 a.m., every day on Eastern Standard Time. If you're on the Pacific Coast, it's 12 a.m., 7 a.m. on the Pacific Coast. So, uh, now let me throw this couple of other questions I want to kind of start with is, okay, number one, you know, know, Delbert, I mean, you guys have been working on a report for the foundation, so I should let people know that you have done work both on America's Majority Foundation as well as America's PAC, uh, which is the super PAC that I run in a foundation I'm the project director of. But one of the points that you know Delbert you know kind of mentioned to me, and I know we've talked about it, is getting that support network as well, uh, whatever they need, uh, the counseling. You know, kind of talk about that, because obviously, you know, it's more than just let's say here's a paycheck, but there's also the need for additional supplemental support. Right, and that and that support seriously should begin the day an individual is incarcerated that support and preparation for return should begin immediately and i know uh, uh, individuals are serving some are serving very long sentences some are much less but there should be a mechanism within the correction system to begin preparing an individual for return we know certain things are going to be important as far as not only those material things such as transportation, employment, education, and training, but it's also important that we prepare them from a standpoint of socialization and psychologically, and that is issues that might uh, be cause for return, such as domestic violence, substance abuse, uh, be it drugs or hard drugs or alcohol, in basic uh, conflict resolution. These are some things that are important that can uh, oftentimes cause a return to incarceration and and even more so were probably problems uh, involved in the initial incarceration. And so the, the uh, preparation, particularly as far as some of these soft, what we call soft issues that are essential, is preparation while they're incarcerated 
pending their return. And then once they return, hopefully as far as socialization and at least an understanding of what it's going to take to be successful upon their return can begin and they can spend even some years while incarcerated behind the walls. And then, of course, uh, the hope is that they'll be successful once they're released. Mm-hmm. Well, then, here's the other question, because we don't hear a lot of people talking about this, per se. I mean, I certainly haven't no. heard a discussion. You know, neither political parties have brought this up as a mechanism, as a follow-up to step one. And, and maybe the question I'm going to ask is, why aren't we talking about this? You know, why isn't this part of the conversation? We, we've done step one. It only is logical what's going to be step two. And this, to me, is always that logical step. So, you know, what, right, well, you know, from your experience, why aren't we talking about this in the political world or in government as a solution? I mean, go ahead. Okay, well, there are a couple of things that I think are, are crucial uh, to consider. One, there are a number of states, uh, once an individual has a felony conviction, they are no longer able to get the citizenship rights to actually participate in political process as far as voting and so on. So many states totally negate that and individuals lose that right once they have felony conviction. We are fortunate in the state of Kansas, once an individual has successfully completed their release and successful uh, probation or parole supervision, they are able to regain their voting rights and so on, and we encourage that and actively work with them to secure uh, the right to vote and so on. So that's one reason why across the board it might be tough. One thing happened, and I uh, retired from state government in Kansas in 2017, but during that time working with the uh, state of Kansas Department of Correction as a volunteer mentor, and then uh, uh, getting acquainted with the, at that time, the uh, Secretary of Corrections as well as the governor, we were able to get the governor by executive order. Since the legislature would not take the initiative, our governor in Kansas by executive order made it possible to ban the box what we call ban the box as far as having to apply for jobs and on the initial application mention that an individual is a returning citizen or has been convicted of a crime on the initial application. And so things like this are uh, what it's going to take because oftentimes uh, you have many individuals who have uh, skills that are surely needed. Before the pandemic here this year with the health and concerns, the economy was rolling along quite well. And at that time, we saw an opening for many returning citizens to have employment opportunities. And so we just have to get more engaged with our legislatures, uh, governors, and regular citizens. Me, I plan to focus heavily and most of my attention as far as support systems on the private sector and private companies. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, okay, so I just want to make sure it's clear because basically, so what you say in Kansas, they can't ask about your status as a former convict, correct? 
on an application? As far as state government, uh-huh. state government uh, employment. Which, state government. Mm-hmm. But that's not mm-hmm. necessarily but that's not necessarily a private you know, but that only goes for state government. It doesn't go, let's say, on the private sector side of the equation. It does not go necessarily to the private sector, but I'll say this. Before, again, before the pandemic occurred and we had the coronavirus and the issues there, the employment situation was so tight that many private companies were opening their doors for opportunities for returning citizens because they found that it was really a tough market to get good staff and good employees. Right now, I'm hoping we can return to a stronger economy again as soon as possible because that will help the uptick. Right now, I'm seeing in other areas I'm engaged as far as human relations and uh, race, culture, gender relations, I'm seeing the private sector take the lead on providing opportunities right now every day. Okay. Now, kind of switch a little bit here is okay, you've been doing research into poverty. And first, yes. first, I'll talk you know, about that research, what you're doing presently, and what are you learning at this point? Okay, I'm learning, and it began with my work over the last 10 years in uh, working with corrections and returning citizens. What I found was a lot of concern in the business community, uh, faith-based community, about why individuals who were returning from uh, incarceration had not been rehabilitated in a stronger or better a better manner. And as I studied the situation, talked and surveyed various individuals, what I found was it's awful hard to rehabilitate someone. Perhaps they have not had the opportunity to be habilitated in the first place. And that and a, that largely focuses on a foundational and generational poverty, particularly poverty leads to a lot of the crime in society. And it, you know, most people can recognize that readily. And so poverty is an issue. We currently have a situation, and I've worked before I retired from the state of Kansas, I've worked in uh, our essentially welfare agency. It's called uh, Department for Children and Families. And what I found was there are not very many requirements for individuals who are receiving state aid and benefits. The level of accountability for receiving this aid is not very strict. It's pretty lax. So therefore, an individual uh, receives certain benefits for a, a lengthy, a long period of time without much accountability. I believe if there was more accountability on the part of individuals to receive state aid, I believe it would give the taxpayers a better return on their investment of their tax dollars. It would create better pathways for individuals to move from dependency into employment and and independence, self-supporting, and I think it would bring about a certain amount of dignity for the individual. And there's a lot of overlap. If you look at poverty, you can trace problems directly to corrections, to human services agencies, 
and also to public education, they show up in those three places readily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's kind of follow up because obviously what you're saying, the, the key element here is go from dependency to independence. Maybe that's a nice way of putting it, where you yeah. can move up the economic ladder. That's the you go. I, I guess maybe I'll, I'll put it this way. Somebody, I've always said to me, I've always said this, and I'm going to kind of get your comment on this, and is that is I judge a success of a, an administration policy with not many how many people are collecting federal benefits, but how many people don't need federal benefits. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on that, and right now, it is a process in transition, because right now, what most of us saw as opportunity within society, opportunities for individuals, particularly certain uh, minority groups and individuals uh, returning from incarceration, we saw a pretty robust economic situation. Right now, things have slowed down. We have high unemployment. We have a lot of social problems that have developed, housing, evictions, uh, general income, layoffs. Uh, We've got millions of people that are receiving and filing for unemployment and so on. So we got a whole different situation. It's going to be very tough. The average person is having a tough time. So those that had any other issues or stigma of returning from incarceration are hit even harder. And then you add to that uh, the political polarization currently taking place, the protests and racial strife within society, and we have just a per- perfect storm of negativity to cause and drive a lot of problems and wedge problems. And so I think we're in a That's tough a good, spot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I agree. You know, I mean, you, you make a good point. And, and to me, the real thing, because I, I would say this, and you may disagree, and is we're going to find that the biggest mistake we made in the COVID was extending the lockdown beyond the original 15 days uh, because we basically crashed the economy for a virus that basically is similar in lethality to 1957 to 1968 pandemic, which I think, you know, mm-hmm. which brings me to a very interesting question. Do you remember the 1957 or 1968 pandemic? The, the 57 or, or 58 or 68, I do not recall yeah. those readily. Yeah. Readily, I do yeah. not. That, that's, my, that's my interesting point. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I have to be honest with you. You know, you and me are similar in age. So that means you and me survived those two pandemics. And on a per capita mm-hmm. basis, the lethality is not much different than what we're seeing today. I mean, when was the last time you had a conversation, you know, you know, God, do you remember, dear, the time we survived the great pandemic of 1968? <laughs> but it, nope, but do, it does. Do not recall. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you probably were in Vietnam at the time. Well, I went to Vietnam, and I was in the military. I went to Vietnam in 1970, and I spent spent a year over there then. I was a teenager. Yeah. Okay, I would say you – yeah, less than – maybe one year afterwards, but yeah. So, well, the reason why I'm bringing that point up, because the the problem is I see it, 
you know, and this is the point. We just got finished doing a study with Wilfer Riley. We were talking about, you know, different focuses. And and one of the aspects we found between lockdown and non-lockdown states is we found increased bankruptcies in lockdown states versus non-lockdown states. And when you look at the and data, I, yeah, and you look at the data, is that blacks and Hispanic business were more likely to be declared non-essential. And so this mm-hmm. shutdown, and that adds to what you are talking about. It adds fire to that mix you're already talking about. We are literally talking you know, unemployment at a higher level, the inability to maintain those companies, those small little businesses that make those communities what they are. And you add everything else yes. to it. That's like adding even more fire. I've heard, I've heard that approximately 40% of African American businesses, particularly, uh, will never return. They're shut yeah. down, and they will never return. And what that means is, most of these individuals, to a lack of uh, financing and access to capital and so on, are going to be returning to the regular labor market as it comes back and builds back. And there's going to be, with so many people unemployed, there's going to be a real tense situation as far as competition for available jobs. And so it's going to be a pretty tough time all the way around uh, for the country and particularly for those uh, minority groups throughout throughout the land. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to take a, a stop here. We've got about two or three minutes left. So what I want you to do is talk about the business you have, uh, how people can get a hold of you, and what it is that you do. Because obviously, you know, you're trying. You teach companies the workforce of the future. So, go right ahead. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm uh, heavily focused on workforce because I believe that work and employment is the best anti-poverty program in the land. I believe the best anti-poverty program is a job, and so I focus on work and workforce development. And I know that that requires a certain level of skill, which is developed in education or training or both. And so I find that that's the best way to make a change. And I think those opportunities, as far as employment and so on, are going to come in the private sector because long-term, I think the private sector has potential to expand and create more opportunities, whereas I think government dependence and government uh, itself is going to contract and become smaller or at least maintain its uh, current level. I don't expect a lot of expansion there. Uh, On a daily basis, I work with uh, the issue of diversity and inclusion. And in my mind, returning citizens are an integral part of diversity and inclusion when you look at staffing and workforce. And so my company is Renaissance Management and Training Solutions, uh, www.renaissance.com. Renaissance Solutions, LLP.com. And we do a lot of work in that space uh, throughout the Midwest. All right. Well, listen, uh, Jim, thank you very much for coming on the air. I appreciate you uh, 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 taking your time. And uh, and again, and so this is Jim Eccles. Uh, this is uh, – 
Tom Donaldson here with the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. And don't forget next week. And thank you, Jim, very much. And uh, don't forget next week, uh, Coco will be back from her sabbatical. When you hear that bugle, you know it's the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm Dr. Larry Fidewa, your host for the evening. And uh, tonight we are talking about... uh, workers' rights in the 21st century, particularly unions and conscious capitalism. My first experience with the union came when I represented the newsroom's intention to hold a vote for a union to the publisher of a national weekly newspaper. I had a summer summer job there after my first year as a high school teacher. Later, as a training developer, I wrote, produced, and oversaw one of the largest industrial training programs in history for the Railway Labor Executives Association, which is a council of all the major rail union presidents. And I also executed major projects for the Federal Railroad Administration, Amtrak, Conrail, and others. Still later, I worked very closely with the National Education Association, the Professional Teachers Union, in a major joint venture, a national research project, and addresses to two national conventions. The reason I mention all this background is to establish my position as an ardent supporter of the labor movement. My comments come from a firm commitment to the need for workers to take their place at any table which determines their fate. The purpose of this essay is to explore a possible alliance between unions and conscious companies. The first factor in this dialogue would be the fact that conscious capitalism promotes the most expansive view of worker rights ever to be advocated by corporate management in the history of capitalism. At last, workers are accorded the respect due to major stakeholders in the organization, whether a corporate giant or an entrepreneurial startup. Almost always, this means sharing in the profits of the company, if not outright stock ownership. The view of this business flows from an idealistic definition of the enterprise, which includes, among many other things, the function of profits as a necessary means to a greater good. The greater good is the mission of the firm as providing a community service through the sale of its goods and services. Conscious capitalism challenges everyone in the organization to contribute to the fulfillment of this mission 
and provides the resources to do so. But conscious capitalists also tend to be anti-union. Most believe, with the former Whole Foods CEO, John Mackey, that unions introduce an adversarial relationship between management and labor, which detracts from the collegial environment necessary for a conscious capitalist company to be successful. True to that description, the unions argue that beneath the sheep's clothing, conscious capitalists are really hiding their power to dictate and enforce their own definition of workers' rights. The workers ultimately have to accept that definition or find another job. With every company defining workers' rights in its own way, no standards will be set or recognized, and this is therefore just the same old thirst for power presented in modern dress. So what's the answer? Is there a place for unions and and conscious capitalist company or not? The first element of the answer is, if the employees want a union, there is a place for a union. During a transitional period, such as the current time, there will continue to be employers who do not want to accept the new ways. The old paradigm of management versus labor will be in place and needs to be followed. Over time, however, more and more companies will join the new movement. Particularly, there is much evidence accumulating that indicates conscious companies are substantially more successful financially. In order to maintain its relevance, therefore, labor will have to adapt. The first step in that direction is to find a new answer to the question of unions' role in a worker-friendly enterprise. So here are some ideas. First, many companies will be trying to transition to the new style. Unions could help them succeed. But, you say, why not hire a consultant or a new senior staff to guide the company in a new direction? These may be useful measures, but no one outside the organization has the same motivation and investment in success as the people who are working there now. However, they are generally as inexperienced as the owners. Involvement in a knowledgeable and sympathetic of a knowledgeable and sympathetic third party can be welcome to all sides. However, for a union to fulfill that role, they must be truly invested in a cooperative approach in order to be credible. To achieve this posture, nations should be reaching out to the small but growing body of conscious capitalist experts, and honest dis- discussions about sensitive issues will profit both sides. Another role for unions in the new world of work we face is that of advocating national and perhaps international standards of what constitutes workers' rights in this new century. As movements like Conscious Capitalism illustrate, 40-hour work weeks, paid vacations, pensions, and health care are not always enough to keep the economy going in the right direction. Today's workers want to be part of the company in new ways, ranging from profit-sharing to shareholders to open communication with governing bodies, including full financial disclosure, to a cooperative culture, and many other new practices. Workers want to be treated as persons, not robots. 
This transitional period is reminiscent of the early days of the TQM uh, movement. Uh, that was the Total Quality Management Movement, which can be seen as an earlier step in this direction. The eagerness of workers to become involved in contributing their ideas and expertise to product development and manufacturing was often almost tangible. It revealed to many of us just how much talent had lain, lain dormant in our workforce. The contention here is, of course, that unions as well as management must embrace this new style of company culture as a means of solving our wealth gap between the rich and the middle class. The reduction of taxes and regulations of the Trump era are doing much to enhance the wages uh, of uh, the lowest income workers. But from a macro point of view, the real challenge is to enrich the middle class, which is responsible for most of the uh, consumer economy on which our national wealth ultimately depends. The leftists want the governments to use a tax system as the instrument for redistributing America's wealth from the very rich to everybody else. And by the way, whether legal or illegal by con our current constitution. That would uh, weaken the individual's motivation to work hard on which America's free market capitalism has been built and which has created all this wealth. Conscious capitalism is an answer to the question of how we solve the wealth gap without turning to uh, socialism. Union support with an updated agenda would help America achieve the right outcomes. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Johnson presents talk radio like you've never heard it before on the Bathroom News Radio Network. We go live every Tuesday and Wednesday on this network, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to the bachelornews.airtime.pro. We are on the cutting edge and we are ahead of the curve on what is happening while the media tries to catch up. We talk issues from right to left. Once a month, we have Ladies' Night, where we talk relationship in the 21st century and nothing is off limits or taboo. Donald files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show, which is also the home of the Bachelor News Radio Show with your host, L.A. Bachelor. This show discusses issues of race, politics, policing, injustice, inequality, religion, and sports that affect black, brown, and poor people negatively. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash labachelor. And the rebroadcast every day at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time at the bachelor, thebachelornews.airline.pro. And if you're interested in having your own show or, or in advertising, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. And uh, I'd like now to uh, introduce our uh, distinguished guest tonight. Uh, the uh, the uh, first is uh, Matt Matt Carey, who is a uh, uh, well. I'll let I'll let him explain his own background. Uh, he has uh, been very involved in uh, union and Democrat uh, relationships for many years. And Gene Pickleman, who is the CEO and co-founder of the uh, TriStar uh, tr uh, Trust, 
uh, company. And, uh, and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the Dr. Larry Show. Thank, Thank you, Larry. Larry. So, uh, Matt, I'd like to start with you, maybe, and you could tell people uh, a little bit about uh, yourself, and uh, and then I'm going to ask you an embarrassing question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'm, I've been a resident. I'm originally from New York State, uh, around the Finger Lakes region, Elmira, New York, and I've been a resident of Washington, D.C. for 50 years, so I've seen many administrations come and go and leaders of uh, various uh, unions as well as private sector companies come and go. Um, my background is uh, is both public and private. I was um, worked on the Hill for three years for New York congressman. I also ran a state office for New York under former Governor Hugh Carey. I then uh, worked for a trade association of 4,500 engineering firms as their senior government affairs person. And I also worked at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, National League of Cities organization as a Washington rep uh, to seven cities, including uh, Houston, Texas, and uh, Buffalo, New York, to mention a few. Uh, and then I uh, went to uh, the private sector and started my own government relations international marketing consulting firm and did that for 25 years. And then I uh, was brought on by uh, uh, former Mayor Vincent Gray to run his D.C. office of uh, veteran and military family affairs for the uh, District of Columbia. Um, my labor union background, I was a member of the retail clerk union in high school when I worked for a food store chain called Super Duper. And then I also worked for the AMP food processing client in college, uh, where I was a member of the International Teamsters Union. And then in addition, I've had uh, experience with one of the larger uh, AFL-CIO unions in um, AFSCME, American Federation State County Municipal Employee Unions, uh, working on behalf of uh, my mayor clients in dealing with the union negotiations with them. And then I also... Uh, have had dealings with International Aerospace and Machinist Union and the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. So that brings me to your show, which I'm very interested in. <laughs> well, uh, before I ask you the embarrassing question, I'm going to ask Gene to uh, give us a little background on his uh, side. Uh, thank you, Larry, and hi, Matt. This is the first time we've um, been able to connect, and Hello, uh, I, look to I look forward to the conversation tonight. Uh, hey, my background is um, I have lived in the um, Midwest uh, my entire life, actually in Michigan, uh, in the Great Lakes Bay region, um, where uh, it can, encompasses Saginaw, Bay City, and Midland. And right in the middle of that is Freeland, and that's where President Donald Trump came last week. And so that's that's where I've lived my entire life, um, primarily in Saginaw. I um, 
after graduating from college, uh, got married, have a family. Um, but I started working in banking. I worked for a regional bank um, for 22 years and steadily moved up the ladder. Um, and at a point in time, uh, after 22 years, I received an opportunity to uh, join a couple others and um, start a, um, a new uh, bank, but it's a trust wealth management bank um, focused on um, a heavy emphasis on financial planning, but we helped um, businesses with retirement plans and uh, individuals with estate and retirement planning. And then also in the charitable side of things, we, we help uh, many nonprofits achieve their goals. And so that's been, so I've been in the private sector my entire life. There was a time when I went to college and I'm very thankful. I do have union experience. Um, I was a, a college um, uh, student and um, GM hired me for the summer help. And um, I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> so there was probably a choice, but <laughs> you needed to join the union. So I did that happily because they paid me well, and it was just a, a great experience, and um, and just learning about how the union worked, um, the uh, the relations between management and labor, and uh, so I do have a taste of that. Um, but at the end of the day, what was exciting in all of this is that I was able to um, start a brand new company um, with some wonderful people who really um, wanted to make an impact uh, on their community. And, uh, and through that effort, um, one of the things that was brought up to me and one of the topics for tonight is I got introduced concept of conscious capitalism. And uh, that's what brings me to this show uh, tonight. So thank you, Larry, for having me on. Well, you're, you're entirely welcome, and I've been looking forward to this this discussion because um, it seems to me that, that there can be some common ground between uh, unions and conscious uh, companies, and uh, I'd like that's basically what I'd like to explore tonight, And uh, uh, but I'm first going to ask you both to take a quick comment on what you thought of my intro, and and in fact, if you disagree, uh, be sure and tell me. <laughs> so, uh, Matt, do you want to start? Uh, Larry, I thought it was uh, very well done. Uh, I really didn't have, uh, you know, too much uh, to say about uh, how I would approach this subject uh, different than you. I, I uh, am in agreement somewhat. You've always been a real champion of dialogue <laughs> now we know why <laughs> of course if I get into the weeds that may get <laughs> different yeah, based on what I read uh, I was uh, actually uh, quite well informed on the subject matter Gene how about you I think you I, th I think you've had a, a, a lot of really good points and um, enough topics in there that we could probably spend the rest of the week talking about. Um, <laughs> overall, I think, um, yeah, I think you've, you've, you've touched on some really, really important uh, 
parts and what distinguishes um, the the um, the traditional way of um, you know where companies view their their loyalty to the shareholders and it's all about making profits to this now this new paradigm shift um, again in in 2019 uh, about a year ago the business roundtable um, stated that the new purpose of the corporation was to benefit all stakeholders. And when we talk, when I talk about stakeholders, because I think this is absolutely critical, is that um, it includes your, your clients, your employees, your strategic alliances, your shareholders, and the community in which you serve. And, um, and, and so when we talk about conscious capitalism and a, a good conscious capitalist and to have a company that's run consciously is always going to always going to have all these um, stakeholders in mind when they make decisions. And one of the important elements here um, is that when you do that, the rule is there's never a trade-off, which means you can't do something really good for the shareholders but at the detriment of the employee or something really good for the employees at the detriment of your clients or the detriment of the community. There's always, if you look hard enough and you have good, solid relationships, you're going to be able to work through those things and you're going to come to an agreement whereby you can, uh, it can be a win-win-win situation for everyone. And so, um, when we talk about, you know, conscious capitalism and, and bringing in the, uh, the union part, that's one of the stakeholders. Absolutely. They need to be at the table. They, we need, you know, um, companies with unions uh, need to have that dialogue. And, um, again, they need to uh, focus on really uh, a couple of things there to make that work. But, yes, absolutely, they should be, they should be at the table. But that's not com- that's not a common opinion in in the in the group itself, is it? It seemed to me that that I was uh, when I read the uh, read the literature, they they seem to always be kind of anti-union. Well, that that's not really what a conscious cap- conscious capitalist. Anyone who touches your business is a stakeholder who can impact your business. So it's. It, it, it certainly behooves the the owners to to look at that because they have influence over the over the over the employees. But I mean, in really, this is kind of an interesting point. If companies were really really conscious and followed the four tenets, and Larry, I don't know if the, your audience knows the four tenets, but if they followed yeah. the four tenets of conscious capitalism. You won't need probably a union representation. Now I know that that's idealistic and not and not going to be um, probably um, um, practical there because relationships have to be built. And um, first and foremost, there has to be a relationship. And we can, I think that's a critical point here that needs to be discussed. With what the, what would that relationship look like? But if you had really strong relationships 
and you really understood the higher purpose of your organization and everyone bought into that and you had your values of how you wanted to treat each other, then everyone would win. And it can be done, but it, it, takes, a, it takes a lot of work to be able to, to do that. And so um, I'll, I'll leave it to Matt to describe, you know, he knows the, the union part a lot more than I do, but um, it can, I do agree with your, your, your statement, Larry, that conscious capitalists um, would tend to be anti-union because they want to treat all stakeholders alike, or they want to, they want a win-win-win situation for everyone. So that makes well, sense. Well, uh, uh, hold that thought. We're uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bastard News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome to back to uh, the Dr. Larry Show, uh, where, which is also the home of the uh, uh, Locker Talk with Barry Barnes. And uh, Barry is, uh, talks about where you can hear about the NFL stars of tomorrow today. Listen to Barry every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash Bachelor, And the podcast every day from uh, 2 to 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time with back-to-back episodes at uh, thebastardnews.airtime.pro. And if you're interested in having your own show or, or advertising, email uh, labachelorf40 at uh, gmail.com and uh, listen to us, and we'll try to keep you informed. Uh, and for those uh, who are interested in uh, listening to the uh, doc- the Dr. Larry show, uh, they're, they're the best way to participate, the easiest way anyway, is to give us a telephone call at uh, uh, 646-929-0130 and uh, just tell them you either want to talk or you want to listen. And uh, then also we're at the... Uh, my uh, column is uh, on the uh, website at uh, www.drlarryonline.com. And also uh, we are uh, on the uh, podcast uh, every uh, every very late day, uh, 3 a.m. or, or 11, p- 11 a.m. Uh, at uh, the same at the same place, the uh, the bachelornews.airline.pro and uh, that's uh, every day uh, uh, six days a week so let's get back to the subject uh, that our that our uh, our panel is uh, discussing Um, uh, you wrote a a, a very interesting article about sort of a summary of uh, conscious capitalism uh, Gene 
And uh, could you take us through those four elements uh, briefly and get uh, let everybody get caught up? Because I don't think a lot of people know very much about uh, conscious capitalism. I think that's one of the things that we really need to talk about. Uh, yes, uh, and I'll try to be really brief. But conscious capitalism, the movement, was really started by John Mackey and a guy by the name of Raj Sisodia. And, and basically the purpose of this movement is to elevate humanity through business because the concerns both of you have are really, really uh, important on, um, on these um, two men. And um, they are very, very sincere. I've had a chance to work with them and, and it, it's, it's, um, it's really exciting and their energy is really high for this because we can impact so many lives. But the four tenets are these. One is, what is the higher purpose of your organization? For example, you know, you may make widgets, but why do you make widgets? And you need to ask that of all of your stakeholders. And you interview them. And that's what we did as we started our business. And we, um, and we identified what our higher purpose was. And the, higher, the purpose of the higher purpose is to, this is where you build unity. It's not about money. Because if you put money in front of everything, it's always going to be about money, and you're not going to get the results that you probably you, – I'll, I'll put it this way. You probably won't reach your full potential. But if you put people before profits and you have this higher purpose and you get everybody excited about that higher purpose, you, you can create great unity. And when you have great unity, you can accomplish great things. The second element is the integration of all stakeholders. And, again, I've already described this. We have your clients, your, your employees, your strategic alliances, your shareholders and community, anyone who touches your business. These are the people that you have to integrate in with all the decisions. And when they, when they can articulate why you do what you do, now you know that you're really reaching your brand integrity. The, th the third part is, and this is where I spend really most of my time, is um, building a conscious culture where everyone has a say, where you build great relationships. And I'm not just talking about knowing who your employees are, but no, you know what they're about. You know their kids' names. You you talk about the higher purpose of the organization. Um, you provide a place where people can learn, grow, and develop. You hold people accountable, and um, and again, you you work very hard at at really developing that. And again, it's one of the it's it's an everyday. It's an everyday thing um, that uh, the, the fourth element is conscious leaders. These are the people who are going to be your forerunners. These are the people who bought into your higher purpose, um, and they are cheerleaders for everyone. And um, you develop these conscious leaders that have a heart of servanthood. And, um, and it's about being very, very sensitive to the needs of your people. And um, in that article, Larry, I shared with you a real good example that really points that out. But um, these, all these, all these um, tenants combined make a conscious company. But I've always said, I, I think what we want to do with the movement is to raise 
the awareness or the consciousness of CEOs? Do you really know what you're doing to your employees? I mean, most heart attacks happen on Mondays. Work stress is the largest determinant of major health issues. Um, the average, um, the average um, engagement with firms is 25%. That means 75% of people that go in the workforce are disengaged in an environment that they spend 40 hours a week in or more. And then they go home disengaged. You wonder why we have depression. We wonder why we have issues of the family. And this, I believe, really has a big impact on the, on the breakdown of the family unit. And so from a conscious capitalism standpoint, the way I look at this, and this is really the number one reason why I'm involved in conscious capitalism, if we can get more and more companies to be more sensitive and, and unite around a higher purpose for their organization and bring meaning and purpose into the lives of the people who, who work for them, I, I believe that they will go home and they'll develop better relationships with their family. And, and I don't know what the other, you know, we, we've tried so many other solutions to try to, um, you know, help people out and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, I believe it's in building trusting relationships where you have a common goal you're all working towards that will unify you. And when people have done that, the studies have shown um, in John Mackey's and Raj Sasodia's book, uh, Conscious Capitalism, they outline how, how firms do so much better than their peers who don't follow it. So I'm sorry, that was a little long. Well, the thing that, that just stands out to me, and I think to a lot of people, is how idealistic this is. I mean, it sounds like, you know, we're talking about, I hate to to take a, a Karl Marx term, but it sounds like we're talking about a workers' paradise, um, and and taking money out of the of the of the uh, the uh, equation. It just seems like it's it's just it's too good to be true, really. Um, well, Matt, I, what, I, Matt, what do you what, what do you have any reaction to all this? Well, I think it can work in certain sectors of the economy, but I think in other sectors, uh, let's just take, for example, the unions going into the 21st century, there's a lot of fear uh, that there'll be a a tremendous loss of jobs and and membership for the unions. AFL-CIO represents over 55 labor unions in different sectors of the economy. So you take a thing like the pandemic here, which has created almost a workers' crisis with the nurses, paramedics, uh, all the other people that have to supply hospitals with uh, their goods and food and everything. Um, That group has been working very, very long hours, uh, and they feel they're not being represented very well in terms of how they're treated as employees. 
then you have the situation of the veterans coming home who would like to get into careers where there's some assurance of a job and some longevity uh, for their families. And um, the AFL-CIO has created a a group inside called the Union Veteran Council. The AFL-CIO focuses strictly on veterans uh, getting jobs and becoming unionized in various sectors of the country, whether it's uh, the building and construction trade unions, uh, aerospace and machinists, uh, a broad range of different labor unions that a veteran might want to join and uh, go to work for. I, I see it as a big challenge here in the 21st century with labor, but I think it could happen if, uh, and I think Gene has some good points, I think if the business roundtable and the uh, AFL-CIO and other uh, both public and private sector folks could get together in a summit and start talking about these kinds of issues because in the past, labor has always been fighting for the wages and the fringe benefits. But I think with the new um, high-tech firms uh, coming into play, uh, they want to be able to uh, produce products and goods uh, with the least amount of employees and the best return on what they're doing. So, um, all these things have to be looked at. Uh, and but do you I have think a, do you have any suggestions as to, let's say, Gene is you're Gene, you're the uh, you're the chair of the uh, Great Great Lakes uh, Bay uh, uh, chapters in uh, uh, of the Capitalist Group, right? Yeah. And uh, now, if, if Gene wanted to to take the initiative and say, you know, let's have the, let's have a uh, uh, a summit, or, or let's at least have a have a introductory meeting between the uh, his his, cro- his group and and the uh, let's say AFL CIO or you know who uh, how would that how would that come about? Uh, I mean, who who would have to agree to that or how would it ha- who would uh, get involved as far as on the labor side, Matt? You'd have to go to Mr. Trumka to start, uh, who heads up the AFL-CIO, and then with the uh, uh, the uh, Teamsters broke away from uh, AFL-CIO, as yeah. did the uh, Service Employee International. So you'd have to go to the heads of the, Jimmy Hoffa Jr. and the head of the SEIU and ask for uh, a summit uh, where these issues could be uh, exchanged. What, what if you wanted to do it on a regional basis? Let's say you're Gene, and you, and you want to get people in the greater in the uh, in the Great Lakes uh, Bay area. Uh, is there somebody? I mean, you, when you talk summit, it sort of it sounds like you have to get you know really the presence of everything. Well, the way the union is structured, the FFL, they have their regional directors, and they even go down to the local 
labor unions in the uh, states and cities. So uh, if you wanted to start it from a grassroots level, you would probably want to do it uh, regionally. And Michigan, maybe bring in a couple of the other Great Lakes states, uh, labor heads there, and begin the dialogue on on the subject. And then that would work its way up to the national. Well, that's one way to do it. Think a little bit about that, both you guys, while we take a break. You're listening to Dr. Larry's show. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and we're getting down to the nitty gritty here. <laughs> so, uh, Gene, what do you think? Yeah, um, great points, man. I and I agree. I mean, there's just some companies. It's just it's it's going to take it, it would take a heroic effort to make a change. But let me share what we're doing in the Great Lakes Bay region, and hopefully, I could just paint the brief picture of how we are coming together. Um, we introduced this conscious capitalism um, uh, way of uh, running your business in our Great Lakes Bay region. And um, primarily um, focused with that? a lot of this. Uh, great question. What I did was I went to Saginaw Valley State University, and um, they have a small, um, the Stevens Center for Small Businesses. And I, I pitched the concept of, hey, why don't we have a speaker come in and talk about conscious capitalism to these family-run organizations? And at the time, I was just really getting involved at the national level, going to the conferences and the summits and things of that nature. And um, at the end of the day, they said, hey, that's great. So um, I got combined in working with the relationships with um, the chamber as well as Saginaw Valley, we had our first um, summit, and um, we had Raj Sisodia come in to speak to explain what does this all mean, and Raj did just a a fantastic job. We had over 400 business leaders attempt in our region, 400, and from that, we said, well, uh, we can't stop this just right, I mean, just at this point. Um, we need to develop a, a chapter of which we did, and we were the first. We were the first chapter in the state of Michigan that started it. But since then, we have brought in key speakers, and we have invited many companies to be what we call a tenant um, partner, which means that these CEOs of these companies get together. We have a CEO roundtable, and we start discussing what it is like to be a conscious company. And we're hearing more and more stories about how companies are being changed, their their culture is being changed. Because the workplace, you know, the younger, you know, the millennials coming in, they want meaning and purpose in their job. They just don't want to be a function. 
They want to be treated as a human being first, which we certainly embrace, but they want meaning here. And so a lot of, and especially in this time of the pandemic and in the challenges that we face in the business community, it is being embraced. And so we have like 40 companies and these are the largest, we have the largest healthcare um, uh, systems involved. We have next tier, which is a, um, a steering gear um, um, uh, manufacturer um, and who has unions that they have joined. Now they admittedly say, hey, I'm not sure how conscious we are and, and this is going to be a journey. I go, yep, but you have to come and listen to the stories. And if I could, Larry, take I'll be one brief. There is a great example of a company, a large company, that has um, been led by the name of it's DTE Energy, which was going to be a junk bond back in the 2004 era. And, and uh, Jerry Anderson, um, they were in such poor shape. Jerry Anderson turned to the, um, his employees and started developing better relationships because they were about to go under. The story's fantastic. It can be um, a book um, that explains the, his story and other businesses. It's called The Healing Organization by Raj Sisodia and Michael Gelb. And it is, um, the stories are in there of how large and small companies have changed their way of life. And today, DTE is one of the, um, it's just a highly rated, uh, organization. They got tens of thousands of employees. And so um, it can be done, but it takes the heart of the CEO. It really rests with them um, and uh, to, to come about in um, bringing unity and purpose in the organization. And by the way, the purpose issue is the big elephant in the room. No one wants to talk about it because it's painstakingly slow but that's how you build relationships, and that's the sacrifice that really needs to be um, done. You've got to sacrifice time and effort to really build a trusted uh, relationship, and uh, it can, done, can be done. And that's what we want to do is generate more stories and tell the story. Well, one of the reasons I kind of you know, backed off a little bit from the National Summit, which I think is a great idea, but – um, I talked to uh, uh, the, your uh, your uh, the executive director of the organization of conscious capitalism. I think it's Andrew McReady or something like that. Um, Alexander McColvin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's close. Yep. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, I, I was I was probing a little bit about what what kind of uh, Approach that uh, that that they would uh, he uh, he and I presume the, his management would uh, would uh, uh, respect and would expect and and would back and he just seemed like he was really uh, really spooked by the whole idea of trying to get together with uh, either politicians or union or anybody else really he, he didn't like the organizational approach at all and i i took that to to be kind of a re, 
reflection of the of the whole national organization, but maybe maybe not. That, that and that's one of the reasons I asked you because I knew you had done some real pioneering work along those lines in uh, in your area there. And uh, well, in the conscious, yeah, in the conscious capitalism um, environment, you're going to have a number of different opinions. And um, Alexander is really good, and and I think he's probably thinking of well, if it all depends on would the unions be willing and management be willing to really start building the trusting relationships? And if they don't, if they keep it about money, yeah, you're not going to be conscious. It, it's just it will fail. Yeah. It's yeah. not to say that you can't be successful. Can't be, you know. But if you really want to move beyond, we're talking about some pretty significant changes and maybe he's just saying, well, I, you know, I'm an idealist as you probably can um, make out here, but I believe anything's possible when you get people working together for a common good and you, you don't make in, if you have that in the um, best interest of everyone's mind, you're going to want to pay your employees well. And, and I just reflect back at how we've, been so blessed in running our organization we've experienced all that so i I speak from a a voice of um i've done it i started with four employees we only have 42 i know it's small um, but the same principles apply and the dte story is a great example of a very very large organization who who made it work so there are firms out there that have done it and um I'm always, I always think there's hope in everything, in every organization. It's just the heart of the leader. Matt? Well, um, again, have to raise the concerns inside of labor. For example, the Teamsters, in one of your articles, Dr. Larry, you mentioned um, automation and driverless vehicles. <laughs> and, you know, and they make their living out of moving uh, uh, goods by trucks and other uh, representations. So uh, they, this robotics thing is starting to move faster than we think, as Andrew Wang has pointed out. And um, I, uh, I think also the pandemic has knocked the hell out of the uh, hospitality industry, as we know it. Uh <laughs> Any, you know, the unions were uh, into the into the hotels. They were into restaurants, private clubs, including golf courses, and uh, they were into um, you know a little bit of the uh, cruise industry. So um, you better believe they're they're frightened as to what this is all going to look like uh, when we get through this pandemic. Well, that brings, up a, yeah. that brings up another point, and that is, you know, it's true that if you had driverless trucks, uh, you wouldn't need as many drivers. But it's also true that that technology requires a whole different group of, uh, of employees, a, a, a different skills. And yes. that, in turn, raises the issue of how are they going to get those skills and I guess that's one of the questions I would ask of uh, of conscious capitalism: uh, is, is there is there a uh, any dedication or any kind of 
recognition that that they they might want to get involved in the uh, training of of for new technologies. Well, I, I would I would think so. This is the issue I, I think, um, and we don't. One of the benefits of running a conscious company, you know, as you look at these challenges of uh, higher innovation, we're going to need less people. People want to work from home, therefore they can be more. You know, all of all this is changing the work um, or the landscape out there. But what we have found is that. Um, and this is true with other um, conscious companies, that innovation and the um, creativity of the employees, they'll come up with other answers for this. Remember, when a conscious company is going to make decisions that's going to be a win-win-win for everyone. And so I, a lot of times we won't know what, the answer will be, and, you know, if you make, you know, if you automate things, you're not going to, okay, you're going to have to eliminate, you know, 10,000 jobs. Well, okay, so what are we going to do with those 10,000 people? You can't make it that type of decision. So that may be a decision, but there's another answer whereby you can utilize those people. And, um, but that's a community service, is it not? Is that a community service? I'm not following you. Uh, the training of of the workforce in any community to be uh, to be uh, skilled and 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 uh, uh, right. you know adaptable to a different type of uh, technology isn't that I mean that is a community interest is it not? Oh, I have no question about, it. and that's a that's a great thing about you know. And again, if you're a conscious leader, you're going to be thinking about that. You're going to be bringing out community resources. To address these concerns, but so, I mean, and again, all these all these answers come from all of your stakeholders. It's just not the employees. It's just not management. Um, it's amazing what other needs of the community are, and where where businesses have started other businesses to reemploy and and things of that nature. So, you know, again, um, I know this sounds again really idealistic. This can't be true or whatever. But there have been communities. Um, there, there have been communities that have really um, resolved those issues. Saginaw in 2000 was a broken community, high crime. They lost 65,000 65, high-paying GM jobs in the uh, 80s, 70s and 80s, 80s, and um, and we were literally a broken community. And the first thing we started doing, ironically, and you could probably guess what it is, we ran a 1,000 leaders program, and it was all designed to raise 1,000 leaders. And what we did was we, we concentrated on developing stronger relationships with everyone. Every class was diversified with labor, education, government, private sector, nonprofit, the faith community, and we started building the relationships. Today, Saginaw is thriving. We have a ways to go yet. Again, it took a couple of decades to put us into that. Our crime is down. We have strong relations. We've had a, um, uh, 
uh, economic development has really grown. We've revitalized our downtown. We have new industry coming in. We have strong healthcare institutions. We have um, four, four or five educate, great educational um, from community colleges to universities. I mean, this all transpired over the last 20 years. And, and I've, I've been a part of every single year of that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, who's um, we? Who's we? It was the community. I started TriStar Trust Bank in 2000, came into the community, and um, they had, Sagnall was running a, a, a community program called Sagnall County Vision 2020. Why are we going to be like in 2020? Because we are all broken. But the entire community came together. It was really um, maybe ignited by the chamber, but labor, everyone got involved. Because we were, hey, we were losing people. People were fleeing our community. And today, we have now leveled off the population. We need to continue to grow that. But, I mean, it can be done. It's just that, you know, the, the, and the key was the relationships that we built in the community, in every sector. You know, this racial, this racial um, divisiveness that's going on right now, we had four protests. None of them were violent. They're all peaceful. And, and, I, and I point to the reason of why did that happen? We had good, trusting relations. So, well, we're, we've only got a couple minutes left. Um, Matt, what do you think? Do you think we've got a case here that we could, that somehow or other we could uh, get a get a dialogue going with the right people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for the 21st century here, we have to be uh, looking for any and all kinds of solutions uh, to improve the labor management relations. And conscious capitalism is probably a very good start in that direction. I think you're going to run into, again, with this automation, robotics, artificial intelligence uh, coming on faster than we think. Um, mm-hmm. you're, like, you're going to have arguments about you need human labor if you have something else that can do what the human does and you don't have to pay fringe benefits or uh, even shareholding in the company. But you have to have people that maintain those robots. You have to have that... others to, to, to handle that new technology, correct? Well, gentlemen, uh, Gina, you have any final thoughts? Well, you know, I, I, I'm always, um, I'm on the hope side of everything. I know everything looks pretty bleak out there, but we as leaders really need to continue to stand up and say, well, okay, how do we get this done? And the first part is, you, you just have to build those relationships first. At least that's been my experience. And but uh, I know the challenges are really high. But um, I, I, I've seen what happened in Saginaw. I've seen what happened in my business. I've seen other examples of it. 
it can be done, but it takes the heart of the CEO to really make things happen for their company. And, and again, um, hopefully they can do it. It starts at the top. They own it. Well, I want to thank you, everybody, for uh, getting in and coming in tonight. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show. We're going to say good night. God bless America, and God bless everybody here who's trying to make good things happen. Good night, and God bless you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.